Hi, and welcome to the Law Notes episode of the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. Last week, the justices heard oral argument in three cases that could completely alter the legal landscape for LGBT workers across the U.S. Before the justices is the question, does Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 forbid discrimination in employment because of an individual's sexual orientation and or gender identity? We also have two rulings to discuss dealing with access to information in the ongoing challenges to Trump's hateful transgender military ban. While courts are limiting the scope of discovery, they are rejecting the government's broad assertion of privilege. Next up, Michigan's new Democratic governor implemented a policy that required faith-based organizations that provided adoption services using state funding to serve same-sex couples, and a federal judge just blocked it for now. Finally, anti-LGBT hate groups are challenging conversion therapy laws across the country, and we have an update on one important case out of Maryland. With us is New York Law School professor Art Leonard, chief editor of Legal's LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest LGBT legal developments here and abroad. Hi, Art. How you doing? Okay. Yeah? We're just overwhelmed with news this month. There's uh, so and much. And we're, we're making an exception to our normal rule. Normally, the October issue podcast would only cover events that happened during September, but we're going to... Go ahead the first week in October and uh, and talk about the beginning of the Supreme Court term. I mean, everybody's been listening. Presumably some people have listened to oral argument by now, read the initial reports. So people are hungry to get your take on what you heard from oral argument. I think by now people pretty much understand, you know, the the three basic cases that are before the court, that we have the two involving sexual orientation and one involving gender identity under Title VII, and whether because of sex written into the Civil Rights Act actually covers sexual orientation and gender identity as well. So what did we hear from oral argument? What were the you know, primary arguments advanced? Do we think that uh, you know, the, uh, the oralists did a good job? What did we think about the justices? Tell us everything you got. Oh, everything I've got. Yeah. Well, you know, my reactions are based on first reading the transcript mm-hmm. and then listening to the auto recording, which became available on uh, Friday the 11th. Pretty quick. And anyone who wants to can listen to them. Uh, I mean, my first reflection on listening to the argument uh, was feeling about the lack of anyone on the court who have, has any experience as an LGBT person. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's like we are arguing for our rights, our equal rights in the workplace to a bench of straight people. Yeah. As far as anyone knows. Right. Uh, we have no out justices. Uh, they don't share our perspective. And so my first reaction, especially to listening to some of the questions and some of the comments from the justices, was these are people who are somewhat obtuse, uh, yeah. are somewhat uninformed, uh, for whom this is new territory. Uh, I mean, they, they did have a handful of cases over the past few years, major cases, in which uh, Justice Kennedy wrote for the court in The Ones We Won, yeah. uh, where they had some exposure to LGBT issues. But one had the feeling of this was foreign territory to many of the, of the justices. 
uh, and it's a new question. And once again, I had the same reaction that I've had when I was looking at the briefs and thinking about these cases as they were coming up, that on one level, it boils down to a controversy about how you interpret statutes. Mm -hmm. Apart from the substance, apart from the merits of the case, the idea that a statute that was written in 1964, that was adopted five years before the Stonewall riots, that was adopted a, a full decade before a gay rights bill was ever introduced in Congress, and uh, 15 years before the first state law banning sexual orientation discrimination in the workplace. Uh, can that statute be repurposed or interpreted to extend to sexual orientation and gender identity claims? And if you are a textualist, which Justice Gorsuch such claims to be, if you are a textualist, you take the words of the statute, you don't refer to the circumstances under which it was written, you ask, what do those words mean today? Can those words today be used to describe a, uh, a doctrine of anti-discrimination in the workplace that extends to discrimination because of sexual orientation and gender identity? And it seems to me that each of the four Democratic appointees on the court get that on some level mm -hmm. and buy into that argument, uh, similar to the way the EEOC analyzed it in the Baldwin case in 2015, similar to the way the Seventh Circuit and the Second Circuit analyzed it in the Hively case and then the Zardi case. Uh, the other side of the bench, well, the only, the only judge on the other side of the bench who seems to be nibbling at it to a substantial degree was Gorsuch. Right. And one wonders how much of that is musing aloud, how much of that is trial balloons, how much of that uh, is just trying to provoke uh, comments and questions from the uh, attorneys and the other justices on the bench, and how much of that is serious consideration of the proposition? Because uh, as a gay person, you think about this and say, if if I was discriminated against, I was denied a job or fired from a job because I'm gay. How is that not about my sex? Right. You know, my sex and my sexual orientation and my sexual identity and my gender identity, they're all wrapped up together and they all relate to my sex. Right. And no matter how you come right. at this question, and courts have looked right. at it from all of those right. angles, and, associational, gender, right. you know, conforming to stereotypes, um, there's no way to get around that it's inherently yeah. about sex. Or at least, it's at least in part about sex. And I think the Second Circuit said it well. They said in Title VII, you don't have to show that something is the sole cause right. or even the primary cause because Congress amended Title VII in 1991 in reaction to the Price Waterhouse gender stereotyping case, which was also a dual motive case. And mm. they amended Title VII to make quite clear that if sex is a motivating factor in an employment decision, whether not to hire someone or to discharge someone or to deny a promotion or whatever it is, uh, then Title VII is violated unless sex is a bona fide occupational qualification. So, uh, so if you think about the conservatives ruling against us on just this point, is it simply because, as Gorsuch mentioned, particularly when it related to transgender people, that maybe the country isn't ready, or there would be this yeah. what were the, what was the word he used upheaval. Uh, upheaval. Well, I think that the best answer to that, and it was it was articulated at least in passing. I think by David Cole, who was arguing uh, on behalf of Amy Stevens in the transgender case, 
and uh, also alluded to by Pam Carlin, who was arguing in the sexual orientation cases, that we now have decades of experience under state and local laws banning this kind of discrimination. And there has been no upheaval. I mean, we have not seen uh, since, uh, I think it was uh, Wisconsin was the first state to pass a law banning sexual orientation discrimination in the workplace. We have not seen major upheaval in Wisconsin, and that was back in the 1980s. Right. Uh, we even have approaching now two decades of gender identity discrimination laws. Uh, first at the municipal level and then at the state level. And we haven't seen a big flurry of workplace bathroom decisions. Right. Almost all the bathroom decisions have been about schools, mm -hmm. have been about uh, high schools, not even so much colleges, high schools. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, to say that there would be a big upheaval by doing this is to overlook the fact that a majority of workers or potential workers in this country are living in jurisdictions that ban this form of discrimination already. That's true. You take the states, and some of them are very populous states, uh, and you put together the population of all the states that ban it. Then you add the major cities and states that don't ban it. Then you add people who are covered by governor's executive orders in the public sector. You add people who are public sector employees who are theoretically protected by the Equal Protection Clause from intentional discrimination. Mm -hmm. You have... Uh, and acknowledge that this only right. applies to 15 or more right. companies. It only applies to companies with 15 or more employees, and that's a minority of the companies in the, in the country and a minority of the employees in the, in the country. Uh, so, you know, uh, this isn't going to cause a massive upheaval. And right. I think... Uh, if that really makes a decision to uh, Justice Gorsuch, then that should help push him towards a textualist interpretation that covers this. Now, Roberts is somewhat wedded to textualism as well, but he's more unpredictable. Yeah. Uh, Thomas didn't say anything, which is the norm. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, Alito, of course, will never get Alito's vote. And uh, so the question marks are, are Kavanaugh and Gorsuch, really. Uh, I think we're not going to get Roberts' vote all you have to do is read his dissenting opinion in Obergefell to know we're not going to get his vote. Mm. Uh, but, you know, Kavanaugh asked one question that was so puzzling that no one understood what it meant. He said, what's the difference between the formal definition of sex and the legal definition of sex? Mm -hmm. Who knows? Uh, Cole was baffled yeah. <laughs> and just passed on that and went on to something else. Didn't know how to, how to answer that. So uh, in, in terms of predicting an outcome, I don't think we can predict an outcome, and it's dangerous to speculate based on oral argument. I mean, those of us, and I'm thinking back way back now, uh, I attended the oral argument in Bowers versus Hardwick back in 1986. Mm -hmm. And I remember we walked out of there saying, oh, we won that five to four. <laughs> and we lost that five to four. Yeah. Because we didn't see what happened with Powell. You yeah. Know, we thought we would get Powell, and we didn't get Powell. Hmm. because uh, Berger talked him out of our side over the weekend after the argument. Yeah. It was amazing. Uh, but uh, I think we knew coming out of a Burgerfell that we'd won because of how Kennedy talked. Mm -hmm. and, and we knew if we added Kennedy, uh, we kept Kennedy in that majority that we had in uh, Edie Windsor's case from two years before, we were going to win. And there was just something about the momentum of lifting right. the stays on all of those. Right. They allowed them to rulings. go into effect. Right. Uh, you know, uh, at the same time that, in fact, before they granted cert on the Sixth Circuit, they allowed the decisions from other circuits to go into effect. So it was clear right. we were going to win. The question was, what was the rationale going to be? Uh, so on this, uh, 
I'd say very, very, very cautiously optimistic, but I don't think we can predict the outcome yet, and we won't know for a while, because no matter how it comes out, the court's going to be divided, which means dissenting opinions, concurring opinions perhaps, and the more opinions they have to write, the longer it's going to take. I mean, you factor into the equation that Gorsuch is very anti-worker. This, I mean, he was basically known for that frozen trucker case during uh, his confirmation, which is where he went above and beyond to find a way for to get out of liability for the trucking company that expected a frozen trucker to keep driving his truck dangerously down the highway. Um, So, so there's that. Um, and that even if they ruled for us, Gorsuch is very, you know, pro-religious freedom, particularly when it comes to a particular set of religion, um, a particular type of religion. There's going to be another round of litigation here, even if they ruled for us, where you see defenses raised like Amy Stevens's right. employer, where they say, yes, I, you know, I object to you being gay or trans based on my fundamental belief about how um, people are supposed to behave. You know, going forward, we have to think about what else might be in store in the Supreme Court term. Uh, since we have extended our temporal uh, scope of this podcast to include the first week of the new Supreme Court term, I thought it was worth mentioning very, very briefly two cert denials that were announced on Monday the 7th. Okay. Uh, Frank G. against Joseph P. and Renee P.F., which was from New York. Uh, that was a case in which the biological father of a child who lost custody to his former partner who was the uh, de facto, a de facto parent of the child, but not a de jure parent, mm-hmm. but got custody because the court decided he was the better person to give custody of the child. So he challenged that. Uh, he was trying to get the New York courts to back away from the famous uh, Brooke decision which uh, Legal was involved with, mm-hmm. uh, in which they said that a same-sex parent who is not married to uh, the biological parent may nonetheless be considered a parent for purposes of custody and, uh, and visitation rights and things of that sort. And he's claiming that violates his 14th Amendment constitutional rights. He Gay dad's behaving badly. Yeah, he lost in the second department. He couldn't yep. get the Court of Appeals to take the case. They denied leave to appeal. So he filed a cert petition. And the Supreme Court turned it down. So that very important precedent is safe for now. That's good. And uh, very little surprise. Right. The fam- family law is not what the Supreme Court typically gets involved in. Right. Also to mention, there are two cert petitions pending that we are following at this point. The first one is Fulton against City of Philadelphia. That was the case in which uh, the city denied foster care license to a Catholic agency that won't provide services to same-sex couples. And the Third Circuit rejected the agency's claim that the city violated the First Amendment free exercise rights of the agency, they've petitioned for cert. Uh, The other one uh, is our old friend uh, from Arlene's Flowers, uh, who didn't want to provide uh, floral arrangements to a same-sex wedding. And the uh, district court and the Supreme Court of the state of Washington had ruled against her and said she did not have a First Amendment right to refuse to do this based on her religious beliefs. Uh, she petitioned the Supreme Court for review. Her petition was up there at the time the Masterpiece Cake Shop case was decided. Uh, the court vacated the Washington Supreme Court's decision then mm-hmm. and sent it back and said, please consider this case further in light of Masterpiece Cake Shop. Right. So the court uh, took a year to do that. And 
they said we scoured the record and we found no signs at the trial court level or anywhere in our judiciary of overt articulated hostility to religion, which was the problem that the Supreme Court identified in the Masterpiece case. So they issued a new opinion, basically reiterating their prior opinion. Mm -hmm. New cert petition. Uh, the Sir petition argues, no, the person who was hostile to religion here was the attorney general of the state right. of Washington, who based on newspaper reports and Facebook posts, wrote this letter to Arlene's flowers saying, if you don't agree in writing that you're going to serve same-sex couples, we're going to sue you. Mm-hmm. And Arlene's flowers. And, and but as you said, and issued some public statements. You've talked about him or this it. attorney general yeah. before, and that's their job to be a zealous advocate, right. they're, not they're, to be a nonpartisan adjudicator. Does the prosecutor? I mean, does this Neutral. extend to the prosecutor being <laughs> having to be not hostile to religion? And the argument in the cert petition is. The entire government may not exhibit hostility to religion, and that includes the legislature, because they said you have, to the Supreme Court, you have struck down legislative acts that were motivated by hostility to religion. Mm. And they gave examples, and they have. <laughs> and and, and uh, obviously, uh, in Masterpiece, you struck down a uh, decision by a state court and a civil rights commission where commissioners exhibited hostility to religion. They said, why doesn't this also apply to the executive branch of government? Are they allowed to exhibit hostility to religion when, in fact, the First Amendment says they're supposed to be neutral to religion? Mm -hmm. And so they're asking the court to take this and hold that all elements of the government must refrain from expressing hostility to religion. And that because the attorney general exhibited hostility to religion and the attorney general directed the filing of this lawsuit and its prosecution through the state courts, the case must be set aside on the principle of Masterpiece Cake Shop. That's their third petition. We'll see what happens. Uh, The state's response was just filed the other day. I haven't had a chance to read it yet. They had asked. States almost always ask for extensions of time to file their replies. <laughs> uh, and so they got an extension, and they only filed on October 11th. Okay. So we'll see what, what they're arguing. All right, there. to be continued. Let's wrap the Supreme Court stuff because we've got a lot to dig in here, and we've only just begun to nip at it. So let's take a short break, and we'll be back to talk about the transgender mil- military ban litigation. Great, and we're back. The litigation challenging Trump's discriminatory transgender military ban continues, and the administration is doing everything they can to block, to stonewall, and to prohibit meaningful discovery and access to records in this case. This month's LGBT Law Notes highlights two rulings from federal courts who are weighing in on the scope of access to evidence. Talk to us about these two cases. Okay. First thing to remind everybody is that the lawsuits that were originally filed back in 2017 now have proceeded to a new stage of amended complaints because uh, the first set of lawsuits were responding to Trump's tweet in in July 2017 and his subsequent memo in August 2017, and that's what the lawsuits were responding to. Uh, In the August 17th memo, Trump directed Secretary of Defense Mattis to come up with an implementation plan. And uh, in the meantime, we got the preliminary injunctions. uh, We got the denials of dismissal motions by the four federal district courts around the country. uh, And then Mattis made his recommendation to Trump in February of 2018. 
And pursuant to the recommendation, Trump withdrew his tweets and his memo and said to Mattis, go ahead and implement your plan, basically. Withdrew his tweets. And so Mattis announced he would implement the plan. Right. uh, But all the federal district courts rejected attempts by the government to rescind their preliminary injunctions. So then the litigation for the, throughout 2018 was focused on whether they had to rescind the preliminary injunctions or stay the preliminary injunctions on the ground, among other things, that the Mattis plan was different from the plan that they had enjoined, which was the total ban mm-hmm. that Trump had announced. Uh, eventually, sort of cutting through the Gordian knot of all this, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, early in 2019 said we're going to stay the preliminary injunctions so the Mattis plan could go into effect, right. which it did in April. The government says that the Mattis plan has shifted the focus from gender identity to gender dysphoria. And so they, they said, now we have a policy that excludes people if they suffer a, a particular medical condition, which we find disqualifying, just as we find other medical conditions disqualifying for military service. It's no longer a status ban on transgender people. Therefore, the 14th Amendment is irrelevant. Therefore, you don't need discovery. Therefore, you might as well dismiss the cases, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And uh, what has happened now is the district judges aren't buying that. Uh, the district judges, uh, in some cases, have farmed out some of the discovery uh, arguments that are going on to magistrates. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've got two opinions, uh, one which came out early in September from the Federal District Court in Baltimore, uh, George L. Russell and Stone versus Trump. And what Russell did was he reaffirmed the findings of the magistrate judge to whom had been assigned the job of dealing with uh, pretrial motion practice and stuff. And there are three findings. And when you hear the findings, you'll know why the government is so unhappy with them. The first finding is the Mattis Task Force, or which the judge refers to as the panel, would not have existed but for Trump's tweets. That is implicitly rejecting the government's argument that actually this is not a unilateral ban proclaimed by Trump in July 2017. It was actually initiated by Mattis in June 2017 when he delayed for six months lifting the ban on enlistment Mm. and said we have to study how we're going to deal with this issue. And that's critical because right. that would mean that we reach back into all of those. In terms of discovery. Discovery, yeah. yeah. So, so this finding says, no, the, the task force was set up in response to the August 2017 memo. It does not predate mm. and it would not have been set up. Uh, that's presumably. key to the entire that's, administration. That's the, yeah. administration. And then the second argument. finding, that circumstances regarding military readiness, et cetera, could not have changed so dramatically between 2016 and 2018 to warrant creating a new transgender policy. Mm-hmm. That's a finding, wow. which means what's the justification for the policy mm-hmm. if nothing has changed? You, you, what you would have to do as the government here would be to totally discredit the Carter, uh, the study and, and Ashton Carter's action in 2016 in lifting the ban. Right. Uh, and then the, the implementation plan. The government argues the implementation plan no longer is an anti-transgender plan. It's an anti-gender dysphoria plan. And the uh, magistrate said, well, pardon our French, bullshit. <laughs> you know, he, he said the Mattis plan did not shift it from status to a medical condition ban because it's clear when you go through the details of the plan that transgender people are treating differently and adversely compared to non-transgender people. Uh-huh. So it is still a transgender ban, even though some transgender people are allowed to serve. Yeah. But they're allowed to serve in many cases under conditions 
that are totally oppressive and that remind me of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Right. But then we look at what happened in the District of Columbia case. And in the District of Columbia case, we have Judge uh, Colleen Colarcatelli, who issued her decision uh, later in September. Uh, the case is now called Jane Doe 2 versus Esper. The defendants keep changing. First okay. it was Trump. Uh-huh. Then they dismissed Trump. And they substituted Mattis. Mm-hmm. And then they dismissed Mattis and they substituted Shanahan. Okay. And they dismissed Shanahan and they substituted Esper, who's a new defense secretary. It's like in the Trump administration, it's, Mass exodus. it's defense secretary of the year, I guess, because <laughs> he's had three in three years. Wow. Okay. So uh, she said, you know, the, the government is arguing that now that the case is focusing on the Mattis plan, the Mattis plan is the result of a study by a panel or task force appointed by Mattis, Mm -hmm. which means that it is the result of reasoned military judgment, not politics, which means it is entitled to the full deference that uh, federal courts uh, usually accord to reasoned military judgments, which Mm, means you don't need discovery because it's a rational basis case. And there's not even any burden on the government to prove that they have a legitimate justification. Okay. So she rejects that totally. She says, at this point in the litigation, I can't tell whether this policy is the result of reasoned military judgment because you have been unwilling to reveal any of the evidence for that. (laughs) Did the task force look at actual data to see whether having openly transgender people serve was causing a problem? Mm Mm-hmm. And we already have statements from members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff saying, no, there was no problem. So so she's saying that's some of the material that they want to discover. And uh, those of us who read the Mattis report that was transmitted to the president in February said, this sounds awful lot like a lot of articles we've read by anti-transgender groups, you know, in law reviews and things like that and policy papers. Uh, was this farmed out to the Heritage Foundation or someone like that? Mm. You know, who, yeah. who actually wrote the Mattis report? And there are no names on it, and Mattis has never never revealed it, and the government has never revealed it. How do they go about their job? Wow. It seems to me it is entirely possible in these cases that we won't get to decisions on the merits, on like motions for summary judgment, until way, way down the road. Which means if a Democrat is elected president, they can just rescind the policy and restore the Carter policy. Yeah, let's you know, knock on some serious knock wood. Knock on some wood. But if, if Trump is reelected, even if he loses the Senate and the House, he can still persist on this. Right. So we'll see. All right. Well, thank you for keeping us up to date and to continue to watch this litigation. It's, uh, it's extremely important. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, the policy of the Democratic governor in Michigan. All right, we're back. So Michigan has a Democratic governor and a lesbian attorney general. Who's also a Democrat. Who's also a Democrat. (laughs) Surprise. Um, Yeah. Who was involved in the marriage equality litigation. She was uh, one Um, of the attorneys in the case. Right, before she was the attorney general. Right. And as a result, the state has made progress on a number of items to to secure equality and dignity for LGBT folks in Michigan. One of those is a new state policy that bans state contracts with foster and adoption agencies that refuse to work with same-sex couples. At the end of September, a federal judge halted that policy for the time being while the court considers a lawsuit challenging the state's current interpretation of its non-discrimination laws. So 
Uh, Art, tell us about the policy and then tell us about why it's on hold while more litigation goes on. Okay. Well, this is actually somewhat more complicated than your introduction suggests. Oh, well, uh, the, the, isn't the pro- that typical? Yeah, that, well, the problem... Get the, us into the weeds here. The problem is there was a lawsuit that was pending uh, for quite a while, okay. uh, Dumont versus Gordon, uh, which drew in uh, St. Vincent Catholic Charities, which is an adoption and foster care agency uh, licensed by the state, uh, which does uh, home studies and evaluations of prospective adoptive and foster parents and certifies them. And if they're certified, then they can apply to be adoptive or foster parents. And okay. then the agency provides matching services and supportive services. Children in need of adoptive and foster parents are referred to the agency. Uh, and uh, people who have been certified are then considered. And then they provide supportive services to adoptive and foster parents once the adoption or the foster care placement takes place. And they receive right. money from Michigan. Yeah, and they and the federal government. The federal government also uh, assists in funding these services. Okay. Uh, so they had turned away a same-sex couple. The same-sex couple had sued them. The case was pending. The state was defending. And uh, one of the interesting issues is that in back in 2015, uh, when these whole issues started coming up and people started challenging the refusal of mainly Catholic agencies uh, to deal with same-sex couples as adoptive or forced parents, the state had actually passed a statute in 2015 which allowed religious entities to refuse, based on their religion, to deal with whoever they disapproved of religiously. Right. The new governor and attorney general were elected and took office, and this case was still pending. They said, you know, we want to settle this case, and we want to settle this case by requiring these agencies to deal with same-sex couples. Because after all, same-sex couples have a fundamental constitutional right to marry now. Mm -hmm. And if they have a fundamental constitutional right to marry, on what basis are you denying them equal treatment when they apply to be adoptive or foster care? Particularly since parentage factored so much into that opinion. Yes, very much into that opinion. So uh, they settled the Dumont case. And one of the grounds on which they settled it is that they would no longer enforce that 2015 statute, which gave an exemption to the religious organizations. Mm. Okay, so now what was looming was the expiration of the existing contract of the St. Vincent Catholic Charities Agency. Okay. And they had already received a written warning from the state if they didn't drop their rule against uh, evaluating and certifying same-sex couples, they wouldn't be renewed. And if they weren't renewed, they wouldn't be a licensed practitioner, and they wouldn't get referrals from the state, and they wouldn't be allowed to make placements. Mm-hmm. And they might have to just wind down their operations. Right. All right. So a new lawsuit was brought on behalf of St. Vincent and a handful of parents or prospective parents who wanted to work with St. Vincent and were concerned that St. Vincent was going to be decertified and not have a contract anymore. So they ran into the court, and what they were looking for was a preliminary injunction here to basically stop the state from refusing to renew their contract and require them to do this. Now, Judge Robert Jonker, who uh, was the district judge on this on this case, he said, we, we've got to step back and look at the whole system and how it operates and how St. Vincent operates in the system. Okay. And it seems that St. Vincent's uh, religious-based objection was only to being required to evaluate and certify same-sex couples. 
they said, once they are certified by somebody else, we are happy to deal with them. That is to say, their practice was, if a same-sex couple comes to us, we refer them to another agency that doesn't have this religious problem. Okay. And then they can get uh, certified by that other agency, and then they can come back and apply to us for a placement. Gee, uh, isn't that generous? And, and support we certify We certify everybody except you. Well, but, not, not everybody except them. They also won't certify single people because they believe that only a married couple so we're talking about married same-sex couples here. So they believe only only a married couple mm-hmm. should be a child should only be placed in a home with two parents. Okay. Their preference is a father and a mother. But if someone's been certified by the state, and this is all their allegations in their complaint, that's all this is because this is on a preliminary injunction. This isn't after fact finding and seeing whether they're lying or not. Yeah. They're claiming that they have placed children with same-sex couples in the past. Okay. That they have provided supportive services. And that they never turn people away without a referral to another agency that would be willing to deal with them. Mm-hmm. And so the issue is, if that's how it functions, and for purposes of the preliminary injunction, we accept that that's how it functions, the judge says, I really should give a preliminary injunction to them so they don't lose their license and they can continue to operate. While this yeah. litigation and, proceeds. And so, so that doesn't sound like all that bad. Uh, the question always is when these faith-based agencies come in. Well, is, and that the headline yes. for this this case was judge allows faith-based yeah. uh, adoption agency yeah. to turn away same-sex couples. Yeah. That's the headline. <laughs> but that's because you can't put all the details in a headline. Right, right, right. That's the problem. Go on. So That's tell. the problem with getting you know beyond tabloid journalism into the weeds, you know, which we try to do here. Uh, so, <laughs> Thank you for digging in. Yeah, so, so the situation is complicated. And furthermore, their foster care services contract runs through September 30, 2021. So it isn't up for two years. So it's really about the adoptive uh, services. And uh, ultimately, there will be discovery in this case. There mm-hmm. will be fact-finding in this case. If it turns out that same-sex couples are also not treated equally with regard to placements and services, that will be a different story. Uh, in the meantime, of course... We've got the Michigan legislature to deal with, and how are they going to react to, uh, you know, we, we haven't had much time for this to play out, for the executive branch of the state government Say to decide not to enforce a statute, law, yeah. which would specifically allow faith-based organizations to go their own way on this issue. Uh, so it's an interesting case. Uh, I think it's worth people reading the court's opinion. The case is Buck versus Gordon. September but if you don't 26th. read law notes, well, well if you read Arts law notes, read you get, it for you. you'll get all the details if you read law notes. That's we went into right. great detail in our article about this. That's fabulous. Okay, let's go ahead and take a break. And surprisingly, we're coming back to Maryland. A lot of focus on Maryland um, and a really important ruling on um, a conversion therapy uh, ban. Okay, we're back. On September 20th, a federal judge tossed out a lawsuit challenging Maryland's ban on treating minors with conversion therapy. The lawsuit was brought by a psychotherapist who was claiming that by banning LGBT torture, the state was violating the therapist's First Amendment right to free speech and religious liberty. The case was brought by Liberty Council, and if you listen to the Legal uh, LGBT podcast, you are likely aware that this is just one lawsuit um, of several that's being brought by anti-LGBT hate groups that are seeking to strike down conversion therapy bans at the state and local level. 
Um, so let's go ahead and talk about uh, this case and then kind of more broadly some of the challenges that we're seeing on First Amendment grounds to conversion therapy laws. Right. Well, this case is significant because it's the first real major decision since Justice Thomas in an opinion for the Supreme Court, uh, well, according to Westlaw and Lexis, abrogated mm -hmm. the decisions by the Ninth and Third Circuits, which upheld the conversion therapy bans in New Jersey and California. Okay. All right. So uh, the problem is, what is the theoretical basis on which the state is purporting to outlaw this form of therapy? And what we're being told in these cases, and I think they've, they're very careful in picking their plaintiffs here, who are psychologists generally, uh, they're claiming that this is entirely talk therapy. It's all about talk. And since it's all about talk, there's a First Amendment argument to be made that this is a content-based regulation of speech, and the content-based regulations of speech are subject to strict scrutiny and rarely survive. Okay. Now, the concept comes up in defending these laws that what they are doing is regulating a form of therapy, a medical practice, and that states traditionally do regulate medical practice through the licensing process. They license the practitioners, and if someone engages in a practice that the state considers to be uh, in, in wrong, abhorrent, yeah. abhor abhorrent, harmful, they can have their license suspended for engaging in malpractice, and they can right. be fined uh -huh. in some circumstances. Uh, and the theory is that the speech involved in providing this therapy is not personal speech of the therapist, it's professional speech. It's speech that's rendered as part of conduct, and therefore it should not be subject to strict scrutiny. At best, heightened scrutiny, maybe even just rational basis, because of the traditional role of the state in licensing and regulating the practice of medicine. Uh, and furthermore, that conversion therapy is uh, totally spurious. It's not based on uh, peer-reviewed medical research, so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it's, it's actually bogus medicine. And in fact, that's what a New Jersey court found in a challenge to conversion therapy under the consumer protection laws in that right. state. So, so what about Thomas? Why are we so fearful of what, what he... Well, what happened was that this was a case involving a California law that required uh, any clinic or healthcare practice that dealt with uh, pregnancy uh, to post mo messages for patients to see uh, about the availability of uh, reproductive health care and abortion services in the state. And faith-based clinics, which uh, attempt to dissuade people from having abortions and won't perform them, uh, they didn't want to post these notices. Mm -hmm. And they claimed it was coerced speech in violation of their First Amendment rights, and the Supreme Court agreed. Mm -hmm. And the opinion by Thomas said the state is trying to uh, say that we can regulate the speech because it's professional speech, and we can require professionals to say certain things. And uh, he said, we have never approved or recognized a separate category of professional speech. And he cited cases with disapproval of circuit courts that had, and he cited the Third and Ninth Circuit cases uh, mm. that had rejected uh, challenges, First Amendment challenges to conversion therapy bans. 
Uh, and that's why Westlaw and Lexus, if you look up those circuit court cases, it will say abrogated and it will cite the Supreme Court's decision mm. in this clinic's case. Uh, so since that happened, the uh, opponents of the Have conversion therapy... Have you really therapy not is, seen the Supreme Court weigh in at all on professional speech and what level of scrutiny applies? Well, evidently, Thomas claims that they've never recognized professional speech as such. So in the Third and Ninth Circuit, they were relying on their own precedent about professional yeah. speech. Okay. Right. Uh, and uh, there was a lot of circuit, other circuit cases uh, that they were relying on. It's not like they invented it for the purpose of the conversion therapy sure, cases. Sure, yeah. But uh, so now the, uh, the people who are opposed to these bans are trying to use Justice Thomas's opinion to go back and challenge the bans. And we already reported on one attempt. They went back to the Third Circuit and they said, we want the Third Circuit to withdraw its mandate in the prior case and remand it to the uh, trial judge to redo the case on the grounds that the professional speech doctrine is out. Right, yeah. Which was used by the district judge. Uh, and the Third Circuit refused on bank. And the Supreme Court denied a cert petition in that case. Yeah. So what do you make of that? I mean, mm -hmm. denial of a cert petition is not supposed to mean anything in particular except the court decided not to hear the case. Yeah. It's not a decision on the merits. But uh, in this case, Judge uh, Deborah Chazanel in the district in, in Maryland said that she found this conversion therapy issue to be distinguishable from the clinic's issue because the clinic's issue was about compelled speech. Mm -hmm. And this is about... Conduct. This is about therapy that happens to involve speech. Mm -hmm. And so she said she's not treating it as a separate professional speech case. She's treating it as a regulation of conduct case within the sphere that is very traditionally a subject of state regulation, the licensing of health care. Yeah. Uh, and so she rejected uh, the First Amendment challenge in this case. Uh, this is significant because there are cases pending before the 11th Circuit from decisions by a judge in Florida striking, or rather upholding, conversion therapy bans in two municipalities. And uh, something we will be reporting on in the next issue of Law Notes is a decision by a district judge in Tampa striking down the municipal ordinance on conversion therapy on preemption grounds. Right. He says the regulation of health care is a traditional state function. The state does the licensing. How come the city of Tampa is now interfering with that? Right by saying it's unprofessional conduct to perform this therapy. That's the role of the state medical board. Right. So, you know, we'll talk a little more about that next time because we probably will have other developments to, uh, to report on. Wow. I mean, the interesting thing is a lot of states actually do. So New York, for right. one, yeah. uh, New York is solely the state of, um, in charge of licensing people, right. period, professionally. Right. So the city can't do that. Right. right. So it is, the preemption line of argument is is interesting. And, right. you know, it's particularly important that we don't get too alarmist about the Tampa ruling, though this was a very conservative judge and we were worried about, uh, you know, things that he said in oral argument yeah. in particular he said, anyway. He said other things in his opinion that thankfully are dicta for right. the simple reason that he based his decision on preemption, right. not on the First Amendment or right. other things. Um, so, yes, uh, we're going to be watching these cases, and I, I, as we've mentioned, this isn't going to be the first time you're writing about them or right. that we're talking about them, so stay tuned. We don't have an of note segment for the, prepared for you guys, but... Uh, because we had so many main segments. So many and main this, segments. And this was getting long. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much, Art, for talking with us. Uh, we will be back uh, next month 
with uh, our next installment of the LGBT Law Notes uh, episode of the podcast. Thank you for listening. 